1: Welcome to Meet the Press Now. I am Chuck Todd. We are, of course, unpacking all the breaking news from the last hour or so ago as a federal judge has just unsealed the search warrant from the FBI search of former President Trump's Mar-a-Lago residence. It appears to show that a cache of highly sensitive information was indeed obtained by federal agents earlier this week, which means potentially some very real legal exposure for the former president. According to the list of property seized by authorities, agents removed 20 boxes from the former president's home, including 11 sets of classified documents that included four sets of top secret documents, the highest classification, three sets of secret documents, the next level, and three sets of confidential documents, another level down, and various other classified material. The potential statute violations on the search warrant include a potential violation of the Espionage Act, according to the Justice Department. So let all this sink in for a second. The search warrant shows that the former president of the United States is now under investigation for potential violation of the Espionage Act. The list of items seized also mention items like binders, photos, a handwritten note, Roger Stone's grant of clemency, and oddly enough, information about, quote, the president of France. Big question, of course, what exactly was in this classified material? The Washington Post is citing sources as saying that agents were looking for nuclear documents, among other things. No word if they found them or not. And the New York Times is reporting that investigators are concerned about material the government calls special access programs. That's a designation typically used for the, among the highest classified government operations or capabilities that there is. Now, as for how the investigators were aware of these documents' potential presence at Mar-a-Lago, NBC News has confirmed that, quote, someone familiar with the stored papers at the president's Florida residence, gave a tip to authorities about the presence of classified documents that former President Trump and his lawyers had not turned over following a meeting with authorities earlier this year. Now, the former president responded after the search warrant came out this afternoon, claiming that the sensitive documents in question were declassified and saying authorities could have had them without a search, which, of course, does not match up with our timeline. Those are just His latest comments on this search. Some others over the last 24 hours include floating various conspiracy theories that include that the FBI could have planted evidence at Mar-a-Lago, suggesting without evidence and against provable facts that somehow former President Barack Obama retained classified nuclear documents after his presidency. All of that has already been debunked. Some Republicans, especially the, the Trump allies, are still circling the wagons around their party leader while continuing to attack the Justice Department. That said, a chorus of Trump defenders is not as loud today as it was earlier this week. In fact, a New York Times report, to keep in mind from yesterday, some senior Republicans have been warned by allies of Mr. Trump not to continue to be as aggressive in criticizing the Justice Department and the FBI over this matter because it is possible that more damaging information about Mr. Trump related to the search will eventually become public. So let's unpack as much of this as we can convey. With us now are Justice and Intelligence Correspondent Ken Delaney our national political reporter, Mark Caputo, who obtained uh, first obtained the search warrant for NBC News. Also with us is former federal prosecutor and NBC legal analyst, Carol Lamb. We also have the New York Times-Washington investigative correspondent, Mark Mazzetti. So, Ken, uh, let's go through this. And I, I do think it's important to note that the first reports over the last hour or so clearly came where it was Donald Trump's legal team getting this out there first. In fact, some outlets friendlier to him seemed to get it before anybody else did. Now we're getting the government's official release. So I just want to start off at the top, Ken. Is there any difference in what we saw get circulated about two hours ago and what the government officially released just a few minutes ago?
2: Not that we can tell, Chuck. And hats off to Mark Caputo for getting this for us before the government release. Um, No, no, it, it appears to all line up. It's not a very complicated document, other than the statutes that the lawyers know better than the rest of us. Um, but, you know, it's it's, uh, it's just remarkable on so many levels, as you laid out very well, the extent to which very highly classified information was found and seized by the FBI in the President's House, the fact that he's under investigation for potential violations of the Espionage Act, and also statutes covering obstruction and a statute involving um, government records, that the penalty for which it is a ban from holding public office Now some people believe that's unconstitutional But nonetheless worth mentioning mm-hmm. um, and, and the fact that, uh, that you know, The FBI laid out what they were seeking In the warrant um, That In very dramatic and stark language About you know, national defense information Mishandling of classified information Any evidence of the knowing Alteration, destruction or concealment Of any government or presidential records So I mean look We don't have the affidavit, obviously, so we don't have the really juicy stuff. We don't have the FBI's explanation of why they conducted this search uh, and exactly what evidence Mm -hmm. they have that a crime was committed uh, and other aspects of their investigation. But we, we certainly have a case here that that this is a very serious matter, that the president, yeah. former president of the United States took home a bunch of documents he shouldn't have had. Other presidents uh, just didn't do this. In fact, when they wrote memoirs and they, and they needed to access classified records, they went to sensitive compartmented facilities. They went right. to military bases. Trump took this stuff home.
1: All right, let me go through a few of the specifics with you, Ken, to see if you can shed a little more light on these definitions. So, in the contents, four sets of, quote, top secret documents. Top secret is is the, basically the highest level, classification level we have. Um, the definition, according to our friends at Cornell University with that, is that the leaking of that stuff would be exceptionally grave. Do you have an example of what falls into top secret?
2: It's hard because, honestly, you know you know that I covered the intelligence community for mm-hmm. many years. Almost all the really important secrets seem to be top, one, one level up. Not really one level up, but the designation... Top secret SCI. Okay, which is, I know, the there was all thing right. Let me
1: let's me. pause there a minute. I'm glad you brought that up because there was one set of documents that were in this list that's were 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 TS SCI. That is the absolute highest classification. What does that mean?
2: It's not actually a a level of classification. It's a designation given to top secret documents that are so sensitive that it's compartmented, meaning that only the people who absolutely need to know are read in. So we're talking about, you know, who the CIA sources are in the Kremlin or NSA transcripts of conversations among the Chinese leaders. So the most sensitive, the most hard target intelligence that the U.S. is collecting. And, and uh, you know, talk about exceptional. I don't know if there's words that are stronger than exceptionally grave, but mm-hmm. those are the secrets that the U.S. really, really wants to protect.
1: All right. Uh, let me ask you this. When is the next time we should expect to potentially learn more in a in a formal fashion from the government? For instance, are we going to see the is there any way we'll see the affidavit um, other than the government deciding to release it at some point?
2: So, Chuck, this is the big question surrounding this whole matter, in my view. Well, first of all, I should add NBC News is among a group of news Mm -hmm. organizations that's asking the judge to unseal the warrant. Uh, But uh, generally, that's a pretty tough road to hoe there when the ju- when the government is saying we're trying to protect sensitive information. But to your larger question, so this could go a number of different ways. It's possible that this was just about the government wanting to get its documents back, and right. now they have them, and that's the end. And some people would argue if that's all it is, perhaps the Justice Department overreached, and given the firestorm that erupted, given the polls showing that 40% of Americans mm-hmm. think that this, this search, you know, was inappropriate. But, you know, The the fact that we don't have the affidavit, that they didn't move to unseal it, suggests to a lot of people that there's more to this and that there are questions about why did he have these documents and what was he doing with them and are there other potential crimes that they're looking into. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's the other extreme. The middle ground is kind of are they going to charge a case involving the documents? Are they going to potentially charge Donald Trump or people around him with mishandling the documents? If that happens, then we will see more filings and we eventually will see the affidavit if there's ever a trial. OK,
1: Mark Caputo, I know you've been uh, talking with your Trump sources on this. Um, they decided to go ahead and comply and essentially say, OK, let's release this. Um, can you explain, number one, how they make the case that they were already declassified and why did they just wait till today to say that?
0: You
3: know, uh, there's, there's some inattentive listeners, so I need to be very clear that I am saying what the Trump people say, and what some legal scholars say. This is not my opinion of the law. I'm not a lawyer. Mm -hmm. Their position is this. The president is the supreme executive. Indeed, it essentially says that in the Constitution. And any classification matters are ultimately decided by the executive branch, by his administration. And therefore, as the supreme executive in the executive branch... He doesn't need to follow rules for declassification, according to their legal understanding. Mm -hmm. He doesn't need to ask permission. He doesn't need to talk to subordinates or fill out forms. He can merely say, this is declassified, and it automatically becomes declassified. So in the Trump defense, if indeed they do need to Mm -hmm. mount a defense, it's that all of the documents Donald Trump took, they say, he declassified by fiat. In some cases, they might even argue he declassified it in his head. That's going to be quite an argument to make, but we'll see. Uh, Because, again, as the Supreme Executive, he had the power to do it. Uh, Now, as Ken said, we've never had a president like Donald Trump and certainly never had a president who got his house raided by the FBI. So this has never been tested in court. And if he does get charged, a big if— And it does go uh, to court. The question is, is a judge going to allow this kind of novel legal proceeding to continue? And then what ultimately would the U.S. Supreme Court decide? Because one thing we know about Donald Trump, he will appeal and appeal and appeal until it gets to the highest court. And it just so happens the Supreme Court is controlled by conservatives.
1: Right. No, he wants to. He he believes in exhausting that. Let me ask you this, Mark Puto. Did one of the when the president's statement, he said they could have had these documents if they asked. It's my understanding that the Justice Department asked nicely, then they asked with a subpoena, and then they just went down there and took it. Um, Do they have an explanation as to why they didn't comply with a subpoena for two months?
3: Well, the best explanation actually might line up with Occam's razor, where the simplest explanation is the likeliest, which is that Donald Trump is totally disorganized and impulsive, and they just shove things in boxes, hither and yon and willy-nilly. And therefore, he didn't quite know what was in it or in them. Now, on the other hand it's kind of hard to understand that because there was at least one point in June when where officials came down mm-hmm. and monitored one of the Trump lawyers as he apparently went through every box or what we've been told was every box showing the various documents. Yet we now know that when the feds came back yeah. they found at least 39 other items and maybe 20 or so boxes.
1: Carol Lamb, you were telling us I know you were telling us a little bit earlier off camera you You've dealt with cases that have to do with mishandling of classified documents. Walk us through, when you see this trove that was discovered, what's the first thing that comes to mind for you?
4: Yeah, let me let me point out something in looking over the search warrant now that has just been released. Um, none of the three statutes that are mentioned there, none of the three laws that they're investigating actually require that the documents be classified. So I think what's happening here is that the Department of Justice anticipated this reaction from the president's attorneys that, oh, he declassified these documents as he walked out the door of the presidency. And therefore, they actually did not include the one statute that actually deals with the removal oh. of classified information. So I, I think there's a little bit of um, covering their bases here and making sure that they don't open the door to this argument about classified documents. These statutes that were are, are cited in the search warrants have to do with obstruction of justice, removal of documents that are supposed to be kept in the normal course by the National Archives. And that carries a lower sentence, but it is still a felony. Um, and it, it has to do with interfering with obstruction of, of justice and obstructing a federal inv- investigation, which one has to assume has to do with the back and forth that's been going on with the Justice Department over the past nine months or so. So I think that's what's happening in the search warrant itself. Um, the difference between Dealing with a, for example, obtaining documents by subpoena and obtaining them by search warrants. There are benefits and, uh, and lack of benefits to both approaches, right? Mm -hmm. If you, if you subpoena somebody for documents, you sort of get an unwrapped present, right? There have been a lot of attorneys' hands on those documents and they've, they've categorized them the way they want to categorize them. They may say, oh, this document's not relevant or this document is privileged and therefore we're not going to give it to you. You don't have that if you, Do a search warrant. The agents get to go in. They have the element of some surprise. Mm -hmm. Um, but the result is things are a little disorganized, right? They don't know how the documents are kept. And so they're, they're having to look through file cabinets and, and drawers and things like that. But. It enables them to know the context of, of how documents are kept. So in other words, you'll see photo albums were taken. And I think that the Trump allies have already made fun of that. Oh, they're taking, they're taking photo albums. But there might be one photo in that album that is very significant. And the agents would be reasonably allowed to take the whole album to show gotcha. the context in which, in which that is being held. And you can imagine in some context, whether the document is in somebody's top drawer uh, might might make a difference. So so that those are important contexts that you pick up by using a search warrant instead of a subpoena. Mark
1: Mazzetti, you wrote a very, I thought, a very smart uh, news analysis piece today in The Times that talked about this sort of this is Donald Trump and classified documents have been like oil and water uh, as the federal government and the intelligence community has always had a concerned eye over here. Look, you're not. It it, it appears at least a, a few people seem to imply that the intensity and the urgency of these documents actually isn't emanating from justice. It's not emanating from the FBI. It's emanating from the intel community. Is that the sense you have, Mark?
5: I mean, the uh, the sense, yes, uh, uh, so from some reporting we've done, uh, NBC's done, The Washington mm-hmm. Post has done, um, it sort of indicates that there is um, a great level of concern about uh, these documents getting in the wrong hands. And um, when you talk about top secret SCI documents, uh, there is a gamut, but um, you know, there is uh, if it's classified as such. Uh, there will be uh, great concern about um, you know who might see it uh, beyond a the people cleared for those documents and you know regardless of the legal strategy of you know the president declassified them in his head or mm-hmm. or um, declassified them by virtue of just you know, Uh, Declaring it, um, they are still there's still sensitive information. Uh, There's American secrets that the the intelligence community uh, doesn't want to get out. And as I reported today, I mean, you know, this is after four years of um, this poisoned relationship between Trump and uh, the intelligence world and law enforcement, Uh, and a lot of it is very well known. There's um, his uh d- uh decrying the deep state who was out to get him mm-hmm. the russia investigation um and i said sort of after four years um in, in in a way the least surprising thing donald trump did was just haul a bunch of documents with him on his way out the door um, but that doesn't make it uh any less serious it's quite it is quite serious and 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 that's what we're seeing uh in the fbi action and and as ken said um really uh what we what we will need to know yeah. is just exactly what was what was taken and and that's going to i think sort of tell the end of the story
1: and look i you know without and again the washington post is, it reported about the idea they were looking for some documents that 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 were nuclear in nature but they there was no more specific than that but mark it's my understanding right the president cannot declassify things about our nuclear program but we just don't know what what that is correct
5: well, right. I mean, we don't know the nature of any uh, nuclear material, whether it's something about the U.S. nuclear program, whether it's something about another country's mm-hmm. um, efforts to build a nuclear weapon, uh, or American programs to sabotage other countries' nuclear programs. I mean, that is a very, very wide category. There are things, yes, the president can't just declassify. And so, um, you know. The, the the detail, I mean, the, things are put into special access programs and in these compartments for a reason. Uh, obviously, uh, some of the coin of the realm here can be human sources, can be means of collection. Mm-hmm. And if uh, that is detailed, those things are detailed in these documents. Those are things that the government is going to be most concerned about getting out into the public. And as we know, um, them sitting in Mar-a-Lago mm-hmm. uh, is, uh, you know, kind of a, um, you know, it's a big, it's a, it's a big counterintelligence trap right. uh, for who, whichever spy services wanted to get after them.
1: Like given look I you know, there's, there's any number of international um, frenemies of the United States that could make their way to South Florida. And I know that that was a concern with some Carol, uh, the Espionage Act, um, it, 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 you invoke that when what? When when there's fear that secrets are being sold or simply mishandled?
4: Yeah, that that's an alarming statute that I was a little surprised to see listed in the search warrant because it actually requires that the, that the material be taken with intent to cause injury to the United States or to give advantage to a foreign country that goes straight to intent. And, uh, you know, this isn't that that implies something beyond the reckless or uh, benign removal, of, or this mistaken is not Sandy removal of documents. This is
1: not Sandy Berger taking documents from the archives and shoving it in his pants. This is a yeah, different that, level. Correct. The espionage act. That,
4: that's right. And it, it carries a much higher sentence. It carries a, a 10 year sentence. And I, I'm, I'm surprised to see that because it does suggest that somebody has information at the FBI that at some at some point yeah. along the way in this investigation, they came into some information that there was some intent to keep this information uh, for reasons that are not going to benefit the United States. Carol, do
1: you assume that they that there's an active criminal investigation of the former president of the United States? I mean, if that's what they put on the on the search warrant, it, it, is this not? Do we not connect that dots, even if they won't ever confirm it?
4: So I'm going to be careful here because I don't want to suggest something that may uh, turn out not to have any uh, anything in reason. But, uh, you know, the president's residence was searched. These documents were in his possession and presumably taken at his direction and presumably not turned over to the National Archives or DOJ or the FBI in all these intervening months. Um As I've said before, there is no there may be no document. There's certainly no public document that says we are targeting the the former president of the United States. But in an investigation of this sort, it would be hard for me to believe that the former president of the United States is not at least a subject or a target of this investigation.
1: Well, Kendallanian, I look forward to you getting a lot of no comments uh, about that question (laughs) over and over over the next few days. And did it with you, Mark Caputo. Uh, Anyway. Ken Delaney and Mark Caputo, Mark Mazzetti, and, of course, Carol Lamb. Appreciate all of you helping us unpack uh, this busy day. Coming up, we're going to the search on the former president's Florida uh, home heightened concerns over threats of political violence, particularly amid far-right supporters agitating for a civil war. And we ended up with an armed attack against the FBI in the last 30 of uh, 24 hours. We'll have the latest on that attack next. Plus, we're keeping our eyes on the House floor where Democrats are poised to officially passed their historic piece of legislation that they hope will boost the party's uh, political chances as it invests in climate, health, uh, and, of course, the deficit. All less than 90 days until the midterms. You're watching Meet the Press now. Welcome back. As we learn more about the warrant used to search mar a we're also learning more about the man who fired a nail gun at the FBI building in Ohio, An attack that came hours after the FBI's director warned of increased threats to federal agents because of the Mar-a-Lago search and the heated rhetoric that emanated from the former president and his allies. According to people familiar with the investigation, that man uh, was actually at the Capitol on January 6th, although it's not clear if he actually entered the Capitol that day. He also posted several times on the former president's preferred social media platform that they that they call Truth Social in the days since the FBI searched Mar-a-Lago. Well, and in those posts, minutes, including one that was minutes before the incident in which he appeared to have posted his plan to try and enter the FBI building, police shot and killed the suspect after a standoff at some point yesterday. Officials say he raised a gun, and that's when officers opened fire. So, for more on this gentleman, and all of this rhetoric, and all of these threats, I'm joined by Ben Collins, who covers disinformation, extremism, on the internet for NBC News. Also with me is Clint Watts, He's the former FBI special agent uh, who is now an NBC News national security analyst who specializes in surfacing these domestic threats as well. So, Ben, let me start with you. Uh, the, probably the scariest thing about this is, you know, you, you sort of watched this whole thing unfold in real time. Just you just didn't realize in the moment you may have already been tracking the guy who eventually would attack the FBI.
6: Yeah, uh, they were on, you know, this guy named Ricky Schiffer was on Truth Social. Even people on Truth Social were like, uh, we got to do something about this. They uh, said they sent his name to the FBI. His username on Truth Social was his own name with his middle name, uh, with his middle initial in it. So uh, that's how overt these kinds of threats were. He said, the, you know, the, that you have to shoot FBI agents on site. That was two days before he did this attack. And then, you know, after he did the attack, as you said, Uh, He complained about how he couldn't get through uh, bulletproof glass with a nail gun right back there on Truth Social. So these people are out and about just talking about it. Um, That's the scary part. This is no no longer hidden. This is not a hidden part of our society anymore. Uh, These people are on the open Internet. Uh, talking about threats to FBI agents. Has there been any sort of, in the
1: last 24 hours, have you at all detected a toning down of the rhetoric? Has there been any, I've, you know, there's less of this rhetoric coming from some elected Republicans over the last 24 hours. Has that translated into some
6: of these far-right extremist sites? No, the cat's out of the bag, Chuck. Yeah. Um, right now, especially uh, in light of this recent news, they are trying to identify specific FBI agents or whoever signed off on the raid, Um, There was one media outlet named names. Uh, How concerned
1: is the FBI? I'm going to talk to Clint about that, but I assume those agents are in some serious uh, uh, potential uh, threats of physical harm.
6: Yeah, uh, I'm on I'm back on the Donald reading it. And it's that's the same exact site they used to, uh, you know, organize January 6th. And they're talking about uh, giving them helicopter rides, which say. Uh, a reference to Augusto Pinochet, the, mm-hmm. the Chilean dictator who right. threw his dissidents out of a helicopter to murder them. Right. So uh, that's what they're talking about for these FBI agents. And again, these are people who are, uh, you know, they're, some of them are using the same usernames they used on January 6th. Like that, that's, that's what, these people have, uh, have records that go back years on these sites. Uh, they are just getting back into this extremely violent rhetoric once again. And
1: Collins, I know you are, speaking of extremely busy, you've been extremely busy, uh, and I know you've got some more reporting to do. I appreciate that. So let me move the conversation over to Clint. All right. So walk me through what the FBI is doing now. You know, there's one thing to be concerned about the threats. Now that you know, boy, you, you had reason to be concerned. This was an in plain sight threat, right? It didn't take a lot of it. And sometimes those probably shock, uh, law enforcement officials the most when when people are this obvious about what they're going to do and then do it. What's the FBI doing right now to protect these agents?
7: Yeah, I think Chuck, the the question that never got answered after January 6th is what is the FBI allowed to watch on social media? You probably remember the hearings they had. Director Ray out there, uh, uh, Assistant Director Sanborn. They were both out there at different times talking about what they see on social media and what they're allowed to. And they kind of pushed Congress on, it and there was no answer. Uh, again. Unless there's an open investigation out in the open, you can't just surveil social media to look for tips and leads. You have to wait for it to come into the FBI or come into the Department of Homeland Security. And that's a reactive footprint. So think about it. When they're going to do this raid at Mar-a-Lago, this is a natural sort of thing that happens today, which is they do something that is according to the law based on evidence. They go through legal procedures, but now they are the targets. And this is that stochastic terrorism that you and I have talked about several times which is if a person with an outsized influence, a political leader, points to different targets, the target is known, but the perpetrator is not. Someone else will take this up. They'll take up this cause. And we saw this in Cincinnati. And I would think we can likely see this again. One tends to inspire another. I think that's where the real danger is, is, you know, you got FBI agents who are already in a dangerous job. Now their their job has just gotten a lot more dangerous.
1: So, Clint, I understand this fear of sort of surveilling American citizens, but is there a the way the FBI is able to track potential international terrorist suspects that happen to be uh, in the homeland. um, Essentially, they almost they, you know, some would say they entrap these folks into breaking a law and then they're able to to get there. Is there is there a way that the FBI can investigate some of these threats that way?
7: Uh, I think so, Chuck. Uh, what we've not done is create a domestic terrorism law or regulation or a system by which to handle domestic terrorist threats. So, in the international space, it's very straightforward. If you have Osama bin Laden as your avatar or Anwar Alaki, mm-hmm. uh, that's a tip or a lead, you know, that someone might call in. It would probably be looked into as an assessment there is no such thing in in the domestic space because we don't designate groups as terrorists and we don't designate individuals as domestic terrorists. And when we can't connect those groups, let's say a militia group or some sort of uh, stochastic aligned ideological threat, it makes it very hard to be preemptive. So we could build a system like that. I think Director Ray could probably build some thresholds on a number of investigation and cases to create justification for preliminary inquiry. For example, an individual is at January 6th and then they threaten to kill an FBI agent on social media, that would seem to be probable cause to start a preliminary inquiry into that individual.
1: Uh, let me just go back specifically. What it, the, Some of these FBI agent names were uh, released to the public today by one, one, uh, one uh, news organization. Uh, that suddenly makes them targets. I mean, it, you know, the FBI is brought in to help protect other people. Who protects the FBI?
7: Yeah, it's a good question. Really, they need a force probably 50% larger just to protect themselves. I think that's the big challenge. They're very busy in these investigations. A normal caseload, it it is dozens sometimes for each agent, and they last for years. So they don't have time to really scour the internet or look out for themselves in a force protection manner, which we do do, by the way, in like the Department of Defense or other larger organizations. Mm -hmm. So I think this is an enduring thing we need to look at the Department of Homeland Security, which is about how do we protect federal workers of all types across all of these platforms and what's the best way to do it? And for some reason, we have just stopped ourselves from doing that. And partly, I think that's because it's the elected officials sowing the conspiracies and making the false claims that are really endangering the lives of federal officials at this point.
1: Well, what you're talking about, you know, giving the FBI some enhanced power on domestic terrorism, we see, you know, there's some fear by some elected officials that somehow that that's going to come across as if they're attacking their own their own supporters uh, and there's certainly on the right there's been some fear of that uh clint watts uh always a pleasure to get your expertise on thank you sir thank you up next the panel will be here we'll break down the political fallout of today's massive legal developments plus we're heading to capitol hill as democrats are minutes away from passing an historic bill and quite a few democrats are simply mailing it in you watch and watch it meet the press now At live pictures of the House floor, you will be looking at it, which is still debating as it is now, uh, likely just moments away from voting on what Democrats are calling the Inflation Reduction Act. It's really a bill that is about climate, uh, taxes, health care, prescription drugs. Uh, the vote follows the Senate's 51-50 party line vote on Sunday, with Vice President Harris stepping in as a tiebreaker. Notably, much of the voting will be done via proxy, with more than a third of the House not on the floor at all. So joining me now, our Capitol Hill correspondent, Ali Vitale. And Ali, I want to start there. I understand if Republican House members are like, I'm not coming in for a day for something I'm not for. But I'm stunned by the number of Democrats that are not coming in for what is, again, it, it is an historic achievement for this Congress. And it may be their biggest achievement in a decade.
8: Yeah, and they'll cop to the fact, too, Chuck, that this is a milestone moment for them. And so they can still campaign on something that they didn't physically vote for. But at the same time, it does revive the idea of proxy voting and whether or not it's something that you can ever, A, wind back, because members have gotten habituated to not having to come in, but then also whether it's actually good for the process when members don't actually have to vote themselves on something, they can just send an emissary who happens to live a little closer to Washington to do it.
1: And what's interesting here, Alex is that I guess it allows some progressive Democrats who don't want to go on the House floor to defend it. I guess they don't have to speak today. And I've noticed it is a lot of progressives who decided not to make the trip.
8: Yeah. And and you can read into that what you will right? Mm -hmm. whether or not it's distance or whether or not it's the fact that this is not the bill that they would have dreamed up. But at the same time, when you see frontliners and progressives alike marching in lockstep towards voting for this, it gives you a sense of where Democrats are on this bill, which I've always referenced as like the artist formerly known as Build Back Better, which is like it's smaller and whittled down, but success is success. So at this point, they just want what they can get.
1: You're watching this debate because that's what you have to do today. Is there any yeah. is there any man bite dog any man bite dog moments on the <laughs> on the house floor tonight?
8: No, not really, but we were watching Kevin McCarthy pretty closely just a few minutes before I came to air with you. He had a very large binder behind him, and the last time we saw Kevin McCarthy get on the floor and use his magic minutes during a similar vote like this, we were a little bit concerned about, well, what might he be doing? He talked for just shy of an hour, so yeah, it slowed the process down. And we did just get, in the last few seconds before I came on the air with you, an alert from Leader Hoyer's office, who you see there talking on the floor, urging members to stay on the floor, saying the vote could happen between 4.45 and 5 o'clock. So we'll see if that's the schedule that they stay on. But again, it's Friday, it's recess. A lot yeah. of the ones who came back would like to make this as quick as possible. Because at this point, Chuck, it's passing. It's just a point. It's just a question at this point of like, when?
1: So we're not going to see the McCarthy buster, if you will. Don't again. call it a filibuster. No, I don't think so. <laughs> uh, Because that isn't what they have on the House floor, but he has his ability to do that. Ali Vitale, uh, thank you. But before you go... Before viewers let you go, realize she's the author of a brand-new book called Electable. Go pre-order it now uh, and, and uh, so that you can read it the first day it's available. Congratulations on that, Allie.
8: Thank you, Chuck. I All appreciate right. it.
1: Let's turn back to the other big news we are following, the unsealing of the search warrant of Mar-a-Lago. As we said earlier this week, these are not normal times, and nothing about the Department of Justice search of the former president's home is normal. And David Brooks wrote this in today's New York Times. In a normal society, when politicians get investigated or charged, it hurts them politically. But that no longer applies to the GOP. The judicial system may be colliding with the political system in an unprecedented way. So, joined now by my panel, Betsy Woodward-Swan, national correspondent at Politico and an NBC News contributor. Eugene Robinson, uh, columnist at The Washington Post and an NBC News political analyst. And Matt Gorman, Republican strategist and former NRCC communications director. So, Betsy, let me start with sort of this larger question here, right? Can our political system and legal system... (laughs) live together long enough without crashing the car.
9: That's a great question. What we know is that there's been a huge sea change among Republican primary voters on the Republican base when it comes to the perception of federal law enforcement. Mm-hmm. And this is perhaps one of the likely to be one of one of the more enduring legacies of the Trump era is that a massive swath of Republican voters has been completely disabused of confidence that the FBI. By the is way,
1: and this will court. take decades to change. Yes. You know, in the 70s, it was the Democrats that were absolutely skeptical of the CIA and the FBI and in and a sort of this will be a sea change that
2: lasts
9: this enduring hostility also we've seen how this goes with the Bureau of Alcohol Tobacco and Firearms ATF which became very politically electric in the 90s because of enforcement actions that mm-hmm. they took then conspiracy theories lack of faith danger to ATF agents still persist in ways that people within ATF which is a sister uh, agency of the FBI are acutely aware of to this day which affects their ability to safely do their job. I think what we're going to see happening over the next 10, 20 years is a similar level of conspiracy-fueled hostility toward Mm -hmm. the FBI that will have real-world consequences.
1: Matt Gorman, um, before I get to you, I want to remind people that there were certain Republicans that were warning the country about Donald Trump and about concerns having to do with this, and they were all Republicans at the time. They're still Republicans today. Um, Let me play a clip.
7: i to tell you what I really think of Donald Trump. This man is a pathological liar. He doesn't know the difference between truth and lies. He lies practically every word that comes out of his mouth. And in a pattern that I think is straight out of a psychology textbook, his response is to
10: accuse everybody else of lying.
6: This is the most important government job on the planet. We're about to turn over the conservative movement to a person that has no ideas of any substance on the important issues. The nuclear codes of the United States to an erratic individual and the conservative movement to someone who has spent a career sticking it to working people. Now, would you want to give him the nuclear codes if he had a bad day? Maybe you'd put them on the Internet.
1: Look, Matt, it's one of these reminders that when you were wondering, did anybody warn anybody about Donald Trump? Yeah, the first people to warn were Republicans. I have noticed in the last 24 hours, it seems as if there are some Republicans that are going, hmm, maybe I got out there
10: too quickly. Brings you back to a time when I had hair, back in 2015, oh, yeah, 2016, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, you're right. <laughs> And uh, it it certainly you're seeing more of a measured response from Republicans. If you can not say anything, don't say anything. Don't get out over your skis on this right now, because there's so much more that we don't know. And to your point about the, the Brooks piece, it's not even about it, it's going even further. The legal and political uh, parts colliding. When would you ever have a political candidate who's a subject of investigation? released the information himself that like whether it's scott perry with the phone or trump that he got confirming that he got searched it's wild the Mm -hmm. precedents are wild
11: yeah well it's just weird for me, um, back when I had hair, the way <laughs> the Republicans sound today is the way the weather underground sounded back in the day. Great I point. mean, You're you know, right the right. FBI a bunch of pigs, yes. man. <laughs> you <know>? You're right. <laughs> this is weather underground. Just, You're not wrong. It's, it's the same it thing. It is insane. Jane Fonda's probably oh, going, wait a minute. Exactly, what? <laughs> wait a minute. It took, <laughs> took my line. Uh, so, look, you asked, uh, oh, can— can they not crash the cars together? The cars are crashing, yeah. right? The crash is ongoing. The question is, you know, what's the, what's the outcome going to be? You know, which, which is, you know, are we going to uphold the rule of law or not? I mean, that's, that's kind of, and, and, and at what price? I also- at what price?
9: I also think another really interesting line that may or may not get crossed soon, but that's an important acid test, is not just how Republican candidates or Republican voters treat candidates who are under investigation, because just just to do a little bit of throw clearing, an investigation is not an indictment, is not a conviction. Lots of people get investigated who are innocent. It doesn't mean you did anything wrong. Uh, the the next question, of course, is how does the Republican base treat people who are convicted of crimes? And what we've seen with a host of the people in Trump's orbit who've been convicted of really big crimes is that many of these base voters are very much happy to forgive, happy to welcome these guys back into the fold, including people like Roger Stone and just now Steve Bannon. Uh, And these people maintain substantial clout among the, particularly the far-right pro-Trump Republican activist base. The question is, what happens when somebody's name is on a ballot who's not just under investigation, but who's been convicted for something. Is that forgivable? And is, do you remain electable after that? Well,
1: happens? let's talk about the near term. The last thing Republicans want is Trump to be out there equally with Biden. It's too late. Yeah. We now yeah. know these midterms are going to be, uh, essentially, we have two presidents hovering over these midterms. And, and, and we don't know which ones hover, uh, hovers more at this point. What do you tell, what does Dr. Oz do? I say this like, you know, walk me through this. You're, you're a Republican. What does Dr. Oz do? He can't totally separate from Trump, but my God, he's got to be concerned about this. And oh, by the way, he has his own dual citizenship issue to deal with with Turkey, which is not an insignificant thing. Well, uh, national security.
10: Let's step back. There's a reason that the DCCC chairman, Sean Patrick Maloney, wants to put a bill on the floor. Defunding the FBI. Defunding the FBI. I mean, I don't think most Republicans, especially the ones in, in tough races, aren't stupid enough to vote for it. But still, it's the fact that he wants to do it. I, I think two things. I was talking to a Republican today who who works in a lot of these races and, and he is took takes us very seriously what the news. He's not You know, putting this down at all. But what he is wondering that is if this would hit harder and this would hit more impactfully if the Republican base hadn't been conditioned for six years that the walls are closing in. Mm -hmm. And I think that is one issue that you're going to see. If you're Dr. Oz or you're somebody else, as I said before, say as little as possible and just pivot when you can. It's not a great idea, Mm -hmm. but it's the best you can do in the circumstances.
11: But in a state like Pennsylvania, right? So you've got the Republican base, mm-hmm. and so yeah, they'll they may be fired up. They may be more likely to vote for Doctor Oz or whatever. The folks in the middle, the folks who go either way. I, it's hard for me to believe that they're going to be as enthusiastic about, mm-hmm. you know, voting for um, criminality and um, and violations of the Espionage Act than, say, the base would. Well, yeah, it's interesting. I'll be very curious. How,
1: I think the smartest way to message that is actually the way Biden message it, which is stability. Basically, do you want to go back to this crazy? You know, and that's all it is. It doesn't matter. You may not like this, but it's stability. You know what it is. You just never you don't know what you're getting over here and just know it's a it's a constant, you know, is that the better way to go at that?
9: Yeah. And I I think, of course, that's always the challenge with midterms is Mm -hmm. that Trump's name isn't on the ballot. Biden's name isn't on the ballot. And even though obviously this raid or I'm sorry, this search Mm -hmm. as the FBI would prefer we say was uh, really consequential and important. We, we still got a little bit before the midterms happen. And there's time for all sorts of plot twists to play out. The challenge, I think, for, for the Biden folks is, do they emphasize more what Biden has accomplished thus far in his presidency? Some stuff especially the the IRA's imminent passage, that's really important? Or do they try to make this election about somebody whose name is not on the ballot?
10: And and this is really, take the the search out of it, rate out of it. Uh, This is a pivot point right now. Polls are tightening. The generic ballot isn't where it was in terms of favor of Republicans, say, three months ago. So where they choose to go, both sides, is going to be really consequential right now. Republicans don't have the advantage they did three months ago.
1: But both bases seem more engaged than ever. Well, yes. And that, to the me, the is everything. why I think
11: these midterms are totally scrambled. Exactly, and I think that's just ratcheting up on oh, both sides. Yeah, Absolutely, and the more, the more Trump gets involved, the more the Democratic base is going <laughs> to yeah. get involved. It's uh, it, that—that's just inevitable. But Bets is right that yes, there could be plot twists. We don't know um, all that could happen in investigations of Trump. Uh, and, and people around Trump between now and then.
1: Well, this goes to, Betsy, the most amazing um, blind, co- blind uh, semi-quote, I guess you could call it, it was more of a paraphrase in the Times, where it said, people close to Trump are warning his allies, be careful. <laughs> I mean, it's just like, I mean, that was astonishing. That was something else. It feels like, you know, you're like, and there's a few people around Trump, I don't want to name names because it makes it look like a figure, who who do think about the, the party as much as they think about Trump. So I kind of have an idea who those people are, but that's something else.
4: When
9: you think about the people close to Trump and the people who fit in that category, it's also still a really mixed bag. Mm-hmm. At Mar-a-Lago, the people Trump is dealing with every day, for the most part, are pretty hardcore true believers. It is so important that the person who signed the receipt on these court documents that just came out is Christina Bob. Christina Bob was an anchor for One America News, the mm-hmm. far-right network. She was was deeply involved in the in the actions leading up to January. 6th. She was used
1: as sort of a prop propagandist plant during the uh, during the press briefing. She was, right? shall
9: we say she was very on message. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and she also, I, I obtained an email where she was involved in communications about the alternate elector scheme, about the way that these alternate electors would be orchestrated in that uh, you know calamitous. project that the trump folks undertook now she's working directly for trump as a lawyer very much there's no there's no longer any sort of veneer uh and she's the person whose name's on this document
1: that is fascinating
11: amazing Amazing. i mean it's just you know too bad nothing's going on this week Uh, (laughs) (laughs) once again all
1: things trump it's beyond it's why you cannot dramatize trump yeah no right the story itself is drama betsy eugene now uh, enjoy your weekend Thank you. Uh, Thank you for being here. Up next, how a former Republican convinced Democrats not to run a Senate candidate in Utah. You heard that right. Evan McMullen, the independent hoping to unseat Republican Senator Mike Lee, joins me next. You're watching Meet the Press Now. Welcome back. One of the more intriguing U.S. Senate races developing in Utah is the one between where Mike Lee is seeking reelection, the Republican senator. And he's going to be facing off not against a Democrat, but an independent. It's Evan McMullen. And what's most fascinating about this race is Evan McMullen and Mike Lee have both voted for each other as recently as 2016, when Mike Lee did not support Donald Trump. He voted for Evan McMullen, who was on the ballot. Uh, and of course, Mike Lee was also running for re-election a United States Senator. And I uh I believe uh in a previous podcast that uh, Mr. McMullen told me that yes, he voted for his re-election. And now He's a candidate. They are two candidates running against each other. And Evan McMullen joins me now. Uh, Mr. McMullen welcome back uh, to Meet the Press. Great to be with you, Chuck. Thanks for having me. So let me start first with uh, your background is uh, in intelligence. You worked at the CIA. And look, I, you've, you've, I'm sure you're sort of keeping up with what happened. I'm not asking you about specifics here, but... Explain to me the intel, because a lot of sources that we've talked to indicate that this isn't the National Archives that are feeling the urgency of securing these documents, that it's really likely coming from CIA or DOD. What does that tell you, the urgency that they feel about securing these documents?
12: Well, it's just it, it it's shocking. I mean, nothing that Trump does is, is truly shocking, I guess, because it's just there's there's it's just a bottomless pit of. Recklessness and self interest and betrayal. Uh, But the fact that he took highly classified documents from the White House, uh, stole, I believe, would not be an inappropriate word, illegally removed highly classified documents and took them home to store in his basement is still shocking. A president of the United States violating our national security in that way, for a purpose, by the way, we don't know what that purpose was, we can only yeah. speculate, and I, I won't go so far as to speculate. But there was a purpose, he had a purpose in doing this. And that is what's truly alarming. And that's why I think now we're seeing the news that he's being investigated under the right. Espionage Act, which is, again, truly, it's, it's hard to imagine that, that, again, we find ourselves in such a place in American history. But here we are.
1: Right. That the United States of America would have a would have to investigate a former president uh, under the Espionage Act. Um, Let me ask you this. Six years ago, you were basically a supporter of Mike Lee. Now you're not only not a supporter, you're running against him. Um, How did he lose your confidence and your support? (laughs)
12: Well, I'll say I have to correct the record on that. I know I have told you in the past that I voted for Mike Lee, but then I, after we talked, I thought back on that. And actually, in 2016, I had been working in Congress and, and so voted in D.C., so I wasn't able to vote uh, in, in the Utah election in that case. But I probably would have voted for Mike Lee at that point. Uh, he was still, uh, you know, you know, w- I wouldn't say I've agreed with his approach to to his time in the Senate uh, in many ways, shutting down the government, et cetera. Uh, but I probably would have voted for him. He certainly stood his ground early on against the rise of, of the far right at that time. And, and I certainly respected that. You know, he encouraged me to to run against Trump before I got into the race. Uh, we had a, a long conversation about what I was planning to do before I did it. Uh, but after Trump won the, the election, he, I think, saw opportunity In getting on board with the far right and with Trump, and and he pursued that uh, to the point that he became one of Trump's major allies, major loyalists, even a sycophant, to the point of trying to help Trump remain in power despite serious and mildly betrayed his oath to the Constitution when he did that, when he urged the White House to find fake electors in in swing states.
1: Uh, You are, like I said, the Democratic Party decided not to nominate somebody, and essentially they're behind your candidacy. You have pledged that you are not going to caucus with either party. How do you think you can best represent Utah and not be a member of either caucus?
12: By doing exactly that, look, it's its its very clear, I think, to all Americans at this point that senators who act with greater independence and representation of their constituents, willing to stand up to party bosses, willing to stand up to, to special interest groups and, and PACs, and just do the right thing for people, they and specifically for their constituents – they have the most influence in the chamber. Those more independent acting senators are the most influential people, not only in the Senate, I would say, but in Washington, second to the president himself. That is the opportunity that Utah has. We get nothing out of Senator Lee. He's the least productive senator in the chamber, having only passed four bills that he's introduced into law. And we can do a lot better. We can have the most important or one of the most important votes in the Senate uh, by winning this way, by replacing Mike Lee. And I know We'll do a tremendous amount of good with it for our state, but also for the country. So it sounds like what you're saying is Joe Manchin
1: and Kirsten Cinema are your Joe Manchin, Kirsten Cinema, Lisa Murkowski, that they're in some ways, they're the 50th vote in either side. They're your model. That's how you get
12: more attention it, for your state. Nobody writes a, an important bill in the Senate and asks, what does Senator Lee think about this? It's a question that never gets asked because it doesn't matter. Mike Lee will vote no and he won't be a constructive part of the conversation. Senator Romney, Senator Murkowski, uh, yes, Senator Manchin, John Tester, these are, and and others you mentioned, these are senators who are in the room where it happens. They engage, they offer alternatives when they don't like what's being proposed. They get more for their states as a result. That is the approach we need to take. We should have two senators, every state should, takes that approach to governance.
1: I have to say, Evan McMullen, I've rarely heard a senator make that case, but I think it's a smart case. It's certainly one that hasn't been made in a while back in the day. It's like, hey, what's in the best interest of the state? You know, make sure your vote is up for grabs. Anyway, a fascinating uh, position. Mr. McMullen. I'm running out of time. We'll be watching your race very closely. Thanks for coming on, sharing your views. Thank you, Chuck. That does it for us today. We'll be back Monday with more Meet the Press Now.